Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 25 through 44. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The men who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Sojourn Presbyterian Church. I know the weather's been kind of crappy the past couple of days, but it's good to see you here, everyone here today. Um, thanks, Aaron, for reading scripture. And by the way, uh, can we give thanks to our praise team? It's the all-women's praise team today. Uh, they did a great job. Young Jay did a great job. You know, who needs, who needs that guy? What's his name, Abe? He doesn't know. But um, yeah, uh, that's, it's a, it was a blessing um, to see that. Uh, just to reiterate some of the announcements that, that Jason gave, we are, if you not already know, we are in the process of developing a women's ministry, a legitimate women's ministry. It's in the works now. Um, Grace is a volunteer to kind of help organize it, and so she's already sent out a, I guess, a survey, and then we'll be kicking it off. On, we'll make the announcement on October 8th and then schedule the next meeting for that. So stay tuned for that. Uh, another announcement that I didn't get to put in there is that I actually won't be here next Sunday, okay? Now, you should still come to church, okay? But I won't be here next Sunday because I'll be celebrating birthday with my wife, and so I will be back the Sunday after, but I just wanted to let you know because I was trying to uh, communicate uh, what I'm doing uh, when I'm not there. So um, just to keep that in mind. All right, if you have any questions of the announcements, ask Jason um, or ask me, and help you out as much as we can. Okay, <clears throat> we started this new... I guess, um, series. Last week we talked about Sabbath and something we've already heard before. Um, but I'm not going to just talk about what we've already heard about in many ways with regards to worship. But we want to take a few next Sundays to look at worship 
and not just ask what do we do in worship, because many of you already know, but to think about what we come away with it, what, what, what worship is meant to give you, and what you're supposed to take away when you go back into the world that you live. Um, we're talking about worship, and I'm going to say this. Worship is much more needed than you think. It's much more basic and more fundamental than you think. Because oftentimes when you think uh, of the word worship, you're thinking Sunday service, right? You're thinking it's that culturally religious practice that Christians are supposed to do once a week, and that's why many of you are here today. But if you really think about worship at its most basic and most fundamental level, it's much more than a couple hours on Sunday. The word worship, if you don't already know, it comes from the old English word worth-ship. So when you worship something or someone, what it means is that something or someone is worthy. It's worthy of your attention. It's worthy of your time, your, your effort. It's worthy of your admiration, your dedication. What you worship or who you worship becomes the thing, not only that you love, but becomes the thing that you live for. This is what it means when the Bible says worship from the heart. What, is, what, is, what does the heart mean? Heart means everything that you are. That's what it means. It's not just emotions. Heart is everything you are. So when you worship from the heart, it means that whatever that is, whatever that is, right? Um, my Siri just went off. Whatever that is, that thing will be your greatest source of joy, but it will also give you purpose and meaning and security in life. Right? That's what it means. Whatever you worship, Whatever that is, will be your greatest source of joy, will give you purpose, meaning, and security in life. Now, you take this definition of worship, and you realize now that worship is not just a religious thing. It's a people thing. And worship on Sunday in church is just one expression of this. And the reality is, whether you're a Christian or not, all of us worship something then. All of us worship someone. All of us live for something. We, we have to live for something. And that something or someone, that's the thing that's going to give you its purpose, your purpose, your significance, your security. In other words, your meaning in life. Right? Now, this is going to be a little, a little bit of a different kind of sermon, but it's going to require you to think a little bit. And I know some of us, we, we're not used to thinking a little more deeply on certain things. But this is what I want to propose to you today. That among the many things that we get out of Sunday worship, one of the things that we're to come away with is a reminder of where the Christian's purpose and significance comes from. In other words, where our meaning in life comes from. In our passage, in the whole book of John, so many deep and theological and even practical things we could talk about, but I'm not really going to go too deep into this story. We know the story. I want to skim the surface of this famous story to bring us to a certain point. John 11, you know the story. And we're looking at the whole chapter, not just the verses that Aaron read for us. But as you come into the scene, everybody's weeping. Everybody's wailing. Everybody's grieving. Why? Because the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, has just died. And then four days later, he's buried, right? And then here comes Jesus. He seems to be late to the party. And what, do we know? what does he do at the end of the story? He raises Lazarus from the dead, right? We know the story. Now, Apart from the supernatural, miraculous nature of this story, I just want to point out four things that I think John gives us about who Jesus is as our Savior. 
Four things real quickly, okay? First, verse 32, Mary sees Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In verse 33, Jesus sees her weeping, and then people around her weeping. So what's the first thing Jesus does? In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus weeps. We have a weeping Savior. I think that's what John shows us. He cries with them. Second thing we see about Jesus as he faces death, right, in front of that tomb where Lazarus is buried, not only does he weep, but in verse 33, it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, it doesn't come across in the, in the English very well, but in the original language, greatly troubled, deeply moved, means this, he's angry. Not only do we have a weeping Savior, John shows us, we have an angry Savior. Thirdly, what we see about Jesus as he says these famous words in verse 25, what does he say? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's a crazy statement. But what he doesn't say is, I'll bring you resurrection. He doesn't say, I'll show you how to get life. What does he say? I am the resurrection. I'm the life. Life is not a thing. It's a person. And resurrection is a person. That's the third thing we see here. But the fourth and final thing we see about Jesus as our Savior, he's a weeping Savior, he's an angry Savior in this passage, he's the Savior who is life and resurrection, and the fourth thing, he's also a dying Savior. So at the end of this story, what we're told by John is this, that from that day on, the Jews made plans to put him to death. This Savior, who goes to Lazarus' tomb to face death, ends up dying, right? We know that. And I want you to remember these four things. We're going to come back to it as we look at this passage a little more deeply. And that is this. We've got Jesus, who is a weeping Savior, an angry Savior, a Savior who is life and resurrection, and also a dying Savior. That's what I think John gives us when we read this passage. And as we think about this, and we'll come back to them later, here's what I want to ask. What is the real problem here in John 11? What do you think that, that John is trying to get us to think about? Okay, And it's not just, well, who Jesus is. That's certainly one of the uh, agendas that John has. But I think the problem and the greater question that John wants us to ask is simply this. The problem is this. Lazarus is dead. He's gone. And we're told in verse 32, Jesus arrives late to the scene. And Mary says, but if you were here earlier, he would not have died. Now, I would imagine Mary's statement, uh, it was spoken not just out of sadness, I would imagine some frustration. If you were here earlier, Jesus, if you weren't four days late, you could have done something about it. But you're here now. And the question that I think Mary probably is implying, for what? What's the point, Jesus? He's already gone, four days in the tomb, he's done, and they're here now. But what's the point of all this? And I think by implication, this is the question that John wants his readers to think more deeply about. What is the point? What is the purpose? What is the meaning in all of this? Jesus, he's gone already. And not only is Jesus late, and Lazarus already dead, he, he died of not old age. He, we're told in the passage he died of illness. He's gone. His life is cut short. But to what end? What is the point? Why? And if we think about that question along the lines, we think about this. We know how the story ends. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's alive again, right? It's all good, right? 
No. What's the point of that? Because Lazarus is not going to live forever, right? He's going to die again. What's the point of dying and then being raised to life for a few more years of life only to die again? And I think this brings us to the awful truth that all of us need to face, but we don't really think about deeply enough. It isn't just that Lazarus dies. We all die. James chapter 4, our lives are a mist. It's a vapor. It's here one second, it's gone the next. We just don't know when. And now, okay, let me think about this, all right? Let's, let's put aside Christianity and Jesus for a moment, okay? Let's look at the question that I think this passage in John raises and that we need to raise and think about more carefully. What is the point? If we all die, and who knows when that's going to be, then what is the point of everything we do while we're alive? Is there any real enduring purpose, significance to the lives that we live? Will any of us be remembered 50 years from now? Will anyone remember any of us 100, 200, 1,000 years from now? And the question that I think that we need to ask a little bit more, think about if you haven't already, is this. Then what is the meaning of life? Have you ever asked that question for yourself? Suicide on the increase. Asking that question. There are all kinds of ways we all ask it. Why am I here? What's, what's this all about? What are we here for? What's the purpose? What's my reason to live? What am I living for? What's my meaning in life? We ask it in so many ways. Now, I know that maybe you're the type of person, some of you, uh, that don't like to think so much about that question because it's, maybe it's too big a question. It's too philosophical. Uh, it's too metaphysical. It's too impractical to think about because whatever answer you come up with, you still got to do the living, right? But I want to throw it out to you today for a couple of reasons. First, this question, what is the meaning of our lives, is what separates us from our pets. Uh, I'm, I grew up with dogs. I'm normally a dog person, right? I love dogs. I don't have a dog because I know how much work it is, but we ended up having a cat, okay? I have a cat now. Go, go figure. But regardless, okay, I have yet to hear my cat come up to me and ask me this question. What's the meaning of my life? Right? The cat seems pretty satisfied with his existence. You know, he meows, goes get some food, meows for a snack, right? Maybe he wants to cut out a little bit. Maybe he doesn't. Imagine if your dog or cat, imagine any, any creature, any creature come up to you and say, what is the meaning of my existence? It doesn't happen. And I think we ask this, we ask this question, we need to ask why. Because it's what makes us human. It's what makes us human. And the second reason I think we need to ask about this or think about this question is this. People have already been asking this question for centuries you know the famous Greek philosopher Socrates? No, Socrates. Okay, it was a joke. So Socrates said, quote, the life that is unexamined is not worth living. The life that is unexamined is not worth living. You look at our world today with this question. One study actually shows three quarters of the world in one form or another are asking this question about the meaning of life on a regular basis. You look at our country today. Today, okay, 
a study from Nashville-based uh, company called Lifeway Research, compared to a decade ago in the U.S., adults today are more likely to regularly wonder about the meaning and purpose in this life. You look at three years ago, according to many sociologists, since 2020, that number of people asking this question has exponentially risen. Why? Three years ago, COVID. COVID. One sociologist put it this way. During COVID-19, many experiences, pleasures, and metrics of success became irrelevant overnight. And she says, it's not surprising that more people thought about their purpose and what really matters in life, end quote. So that's why we're asking this, and this is where we're going to get from this passage, believe it or not. What does it mean when we ask, what is the meaning of life? What does meaning mean? Right? What does meaning mean? And uh, it has two parts, okay? Most people say this. It has two parts. Meaning means you have purpose and significance. Purpose and significance equals meaning. Significance means it matters. Okay, let me give you an example. Uh, you're hiking on a trail. It's a long trail. You're walking along the trail, and all of a sudden, right in the middle of the trail, you see a stack of round, smooth stones that are on top of each other, forming a nice little pyramid. Immediately, you're thinking, that's strange. I wonder what that means. Because it looks like someone put it there on purpose, right? It has a purpose. Someone put it there on purpose. And if it has a purpose, that means it's worth looking at. It has significance. Maybe it matters. It means something. It's trying to tell us something. Right? But, but, let's, but on the other hand, if it's all an accident, you know, that maybe there's there an earthquake and all of a sudden these rocks just pile in the form of a pyramid, if it's all an accident, then there is no purpose because it's chance. And if there's no purpose, it's insignificant. You don't need to think about it. It has no meaning. Meaning is that there is a purpose and a significance that makes a difference. In other words, when we're asking, what is the meaning of our lives, what we're asking is this. Is there a purpose to our existence and to our lives, and does it matter? Now, you probably already know where I'm going to go with this, and you're saying, oh, I know, P.F. is going to say, it's Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus. Okay, let's be fair. I am a pastor. We are a church. Yes, it's always Jesus. But, but just to be fair, it's not just Jesus or Christianity, Every religion's answer, every religion's answer to the question of the meaning of life is this. You need to connect to something or someone that is beyond this world. Karmic religions like Hinduism live a virtuous life here and now. You'll be reincarnated into eternal bliss. Buddhism, the meaning of life. Get over the illusion that this world is real. It's not bad, it's not good, it means nothing. Get into the all soul. Even pagan religions live a life of honor, and then you get to live with your ancestors without shame. You look at Christianity, you look at Judaism, all the major religions, Islam. Every religion has a way of finding enduring purpose and significance, meaning in life. How? By pointing you to another life above and beyond. But the only religion I think that has a problem finding meaning and purpose in life is secularism. Or what we could say, our modern secular culture, the world we live in today. I call it a religion because like all religions, secularism 
is based on belief. It's the belief that says there is no God. There is nothing else out there. Or there might be, but we just don't know for sure. So all that matters is right here, right now, in the material world that we live in. That's secularism. It's just another belief, another approach to life. But the problem with this belief is that if all we have and live for is right here and right now, if all we have is this material world that we live in, then there can't be any ultimate enduring purpose or meaning. Why? Because then everything in this world that happens is either an accident or it's a chance. There's no purpose. Or everything, including this world, this universe, will eventually die. Will eventually die. I don't know if you ever came to this conclusion, but this is a conclusion that's not just a Christian one. Even non-Christians understand this. You know, the Christian guy C.S. Lewis, in his essay, Present Concerns, he says this, quote, Nature does not, in the long run, favor life. If nature is all that exists, in other words, if there is no God and no life or some quite different sort somewhere outside of nature, this is what he says, then all stories will end the same way, in a universe from which all life is banished without possibility of return. That's the Christian guy, right? But here's a non-Christian guy, atheist, philosopher, Thomas Nagel. This is what he says in one of his articles. He says this, quote, Nothing really matters, because in 200 years, we'll all be dead. Nothing is permanent. Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down or collapse, and all trace of your efforts will vanish. That's what he says. So the question is this, because I think we're familiar with the secular approach because many of us actually take that functionally. How does the modern person in our culture, apart from religion, how do they deal with the question of the meaning of life? And you know the answer because it's prevalent in social media, it's, it's, it's shouted out in movies and TVs and shows and ads, and this is what it is. This is how they deal with it. Since survival or afterlife is doubtful, since we're not sure there is God or there is no God, and all we have is right here and right now, then here's our meaning. Life is as meaningful as you make it. It's as meaningful as you make it. Sure, we don't have the ultimate meaning and purpose. And in the end, sure, nothing will ever make a difference a thousand years from now. It won't matter whether you lived a good life or a bad life or you're a nasty person or a nice person. Ultimately, in the end of the day, it may not matter. But while you're still here, you can make your own purpose. You can find your own significance. You can create your own meaning. So YOLO, right? Or Live out, be true to you, live out your truth. Or for some of us, family, family. For others, help the poor, make the world a better place. And yet for others, it's our money, it's career, it's success. These can all be our sources of significance, purpose, and meaning. Yes, there's no objective or absolute meaning in life, but subjectively, in our own little slice of life here in this world, right here, right now, we can make or discover meaning for ourselves. That's how they've dealt with it. Now, I'm going to be very honest. It works. 
it works for the most part, at least for a while. Ignore the big philosophical question. Focus on what's in front of you. My purpose, my significance, my meaning. It's a parenthood. It's, it's a spouse. It's a friend. It's a, as an artist or a musician or a CEO of my own company. It's making this place a better world, contribute to society. Or it's simply cram in as much fun as I can uh, and, and buy as many things as I can to give me life fulfillment, purpose, meaning in life. You get to decide. It sounds good, right? And it does work. It does work for a while. But here's one big problem. Suffering. Suffering. For the modern man and woman, suffering is not supposed to be there. It's a wrench in my plans for life. Suffering. Now, what's that? Suffering, at its basic definition, it simply means this. Loss. When you suffer, you lose something. And it's on various degrees, various degrees, okay? Uh, last spring, I went to a retreat. I spoke at a men's retreat. Um, and it was four sermons I had to preach. And, and uh, you know, the last sermon, uh, you know, was supposed to be the biggest one. Uh, usually on the last night, their last sermon was actually three in the afternoon. So here I am preaching a sermon. And I'm going to be very honest. As I was preaching, it's probably one of my worst sermons ever. I started crying started crying, and because I'm preaching about Jesus Christ, right? I'm preaching about his death, and, and tears start flowing. And the guys there are looking at me, and they start crying, but, you know, they're looking at me like, wow, he's a godly man or something, you know, like he's must really spiritual. I'm going to be very honest. You know I was crying? That retreat center was the worst retreat center I have ever been to, right? It was a YMCA center, and the bunks, you know those bunks where the kids used to go? They don't even go anymore, where the mattresses are made of plastic, right? And there's no bedding and no pillows, and there are bunks. And not only that, for three nights, I had to sleep, not by myself. I didn't even get my own room, right? Because that's how bougie I am. I had to sleep with two other guys. One guy snores all night. The other guy was sleeping with a CPAP machine. You know what a CPAP machine is? It's that thing because they couldn't. So I didn't get any sleep for two nights straight. So here is my last sermon. I am so tired. I feel like I'm just like, I don't know if I can get through this sermon. I'm preaching my worst sermon. And, and all of it, I said, I need Jesus right now. You know, and I'm sort of breaking down. Why? Because I'm suffering. Lack of comfort, loss of comfort, loss of comfort. Suffering, right? What's death? Loss of life. Different degree of suffering. But the point is, inevitable, inevitable, inevitable for everyone. If not now, later. And here's the thing about religions, not just Christianity. Religions, all religions, this, this idea of suffering, it's built into the system. It's built in. It's expected, especially in the world. And the suffering is there that drives you to find your meaning and purpose, not here, but somewhere else. But the problem with secular understanding of meaning is this. If all there is and all that matters is this world that I live in, and I've got to find my own meaning in life, and I've got to create it then from something here and now in this material world, Whatever that is, that is exactly what suffering can take away. Whatever in this world I base my meaning, significance, purpose, 
material world, whatever is in this world, suffering can take away. You know how you feel when suffering happens, when loss of any kind happens. Oh my gosh, we are a wreck. Everything is up in the air. Think about it. If my career is my sole purpose of meaning here in this world, it gives me meaning and significance when that career is gone. It's not just, oh, I guess my job is done. No, I'm done. I'm undone. My life is over. I'm destroyed. Even if something as important and noble as family, if my ultimate and only purpose in life is family, marriage, children, like most, according to the Pew Research, most Americans say that's their meaning in life, then God forbid you go through suffering and you lose, and you lose them or they lose you, you will be destroyed. What is there in this world that cannot be taken away from you? If your meaning in life is grounded just here in this material world, you will not be able to handle the inevitable suffering that will come your way. Because if, if my purpose is threatened, that's why I'm always anxious. That's why I'm always fearful. If my meaning in life is being blocked, this is why I'm so angry all the time. They won't let me get to my achievement. And this is why some of us are frenetically always working to secure or protect our meaning, whether it's relationship or finance or work. And when we lose, whether now or later, this is why we feel this inconsolable despair. I didn't just lose a relationship. I lost my life. There's no purpose anymore. Let me be honest. If your meaning in life is grounded only in the here and now in this world that we live, then friends, let me tell you, you are not really grounded in life. You are not grounded in life. As the Bible says, you built your house on sand. It's fragile. This is why Jesus says, seek first what? Not this world. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then what? All these things will be added to you. I think what Jesus means when he says that is this. Only if your life is rooted in something outside this world will you actually be equipped for life inside this world. Only if your life is rooted in something outside this world will you actually be equipped for life inside this world. Now let's come back to our passage. Because now we see how Christianity, I think, apart from other religions, gives us purpose and meaning, but also the resources to handle suffering. Because what Jesus is doing here, isn't that what he's doing? He's face-to-face -face with suffering. He's face-to-face -face with death, death itself. And first thing he does, he weeps. He's a weeping savior, which means this, it matters. Things in life that happen, including loss of life, it matters to him. It's not like Buddhism that says, well, death is just a natural doorway into the next phase of consciousness, so it's not really real. No, the, Jesus weeps. It's real. The, the suffering is real, and it's sad. And we can weep. But the second is, Jesus is angry. He's an angry Savior. Why? Why is he angry? 
Because suffering and death, it's not normal. It's not what God intended. It's wrong. And unlike karmic religions like Hinduism, which says, well, if you're suffering today, it's because what you did in a previous life. So you kind of deserve it. No. Jesus is saying, this is wrong. This is worth getting angry at. There is such a thing as unjust suffering. Third, you've got a risen Savior. I am the resurrection of life. It's the only religion that says this world isn't all there is, but that you were made for another world. Why? Because you were made for a person who is life. You were made for a relationship with God who gives his only son to face suffering death to the max in order to bring you closer to him, to bring you into his family, and to give you life, meaning, and purpose. Fourthly, weeping Savior, angry Savior, life and resurrection Savior, he's a dying Savior. He's a suffering Savior. Why does God even allow suffering at all? If he loves me, why does he do it at all? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure. But it's not because he doesn't love you. How do I know this? Jesus tells Lazarus in our story, come out of the tomb. How can he say that? Because Jesus will be the one who will go into it. Jesus is the one who will go into the tomb. He suffered. There is no other religion, no other thought that has a a God that suffers. He got involved in the world. He was tortured. He was beaten unjustly, painfully, put to death for us. In other words, suffering, particularly Jesus' suffering, is the thing that drives you deeper to God. On the cross, he brings us to him. It's not chance. It's not an accident. It's purposeful. And it has meaning. Now, let me end with this. This is why we worship him. Not just in life, from the heart, but even on Sunday. This is what you're supposed to come away with. Worship reminds you what you and I always forget because we're so busy with the day-to-day. As we close our eyes in prayer, in worship, it reminds me to get my eyes off whatever's in this world I'm trying to do and get it on him. As we praise Worship reminds me that there is more to this life than just what I'm doing and trying to do, that my purpose and significance, my meaning, and why I and you matter at the end of the day is because of what he is doing and what he has done for me. As we serve, worship reminds me that I am loved and accepted, that my sins are forgiven, and despite my sins and shortcomings, my self-worth is not earned or achieved. It's given to me by his grace and faith alone. And no one, nothing, not even suffering and death can take that away. Why? Because of the one who suffered for me. Worship gives me a taste of my purpose in life and the life to come. And that is this. I get to glorify God and I get to enjoy him forever. In everything I do, even right now, I get to glorify him. And that's why everything I do in this world matters. The way we glorify God means this. We magnify him in our lives. But the way we magnify him is not through a microscope. 
and you look things through a microscope, you're taking what looks small on the outside, and you try to make it big. God is not small. When we magnify him, it's through a telescope, not a microscope, a telescope. We look at something huge. He's huge. He's mighty. He's the light, the source of all things, including meaning, surface, purpose, and significance. He's beyond our comprehension. He's full of grace and truth, and we magnify him in our lives. How? By taking that telescope, bringing that hugeness down closer to our lives and to the people around us. Worship brings this huge God closer to you as he draws near to us and reminds us of who we are, what we have, and what we've been made for. He gives us ultimate meaning. And that's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, we... Once again, ask for your help. Help us not just to be faithful to the things we're supposed to do, even as a believer or a Christian, but truly make the things that we do effective, fruitful, genuine. We pray that when we come to worship you on a Sunday, we pray, Lord, when we come to you in any time of day, on our own, during the week, remind us as we bring our baggage and as we bring our pains and as we bring our, our struggles, our needs, our wants, uh, remind us by your presence of who you are, what you've done, and what you've called us to be and do. We pray, Lord, that whatever we're living for, whatever we're working so hard for, whatever is causing us fear, causing us concern, anxiety, worry, whatever it is, as important as it is, help us to remember you are the one who gives and you are the one who takes. And in this world, there is nothing that cannot be taken away. But our life is not built on sand. It's built on a strong foundation which can never fall and never be taken away. So that we can endure the storm. So that we can pick up and go back to work and to rebuild or to, 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 to weep and, and to endure and persevere and trust that you know what you're doing, we don't, and you've promised us better with hope. And so, Lord, uh, redirect our eyes, our gaze to you a little more often. Help us to consider more deeply why we are here and what we're here for. And help us to think through the implications of that, not just in our heads, but also in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.